Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. Always be ready. That's the motto of Siemens Government Technologies. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathrum, and today we are speaking with the president and CEO of Siemens Government Technologies, Tina Dolph. Siemens is well known for their building controls, and about eight years ago, they spun off into Siemens Government Technologies to service our federal government. Tina talks about her personal career of how she had no clue that she would wind up in a position of this responsibility when she was in college. But through a series of just saying yes and traveling the world with some of those opportunities that saying yes has created, she's been able to learn about mergers and acquisitions, being in some of the most dangerous areas across the world, and bring those messages back home in her leadership style with Siemens Government Technologies. Some of the cool things that she talks about that Siemens is doing is that they are mapping Navy shipyards, optimizing their design, doing interviews with sailors to figure out where that best place to put that machine shop is so that they can minimize the amount of time that ships stay in dry dock, maximizing the amount of time that they're back out at sea, saving billions of dollars in defense budgets. Another project is that they are involved in energy-saving performance contracts. One of them is redoing, for the Navy, redoing Guantanamo Bay's power plant and paying for that improvement by improving the way that the buildings on Guantanamo Bay use energy. And as you all know, here on the DC Local Leaders podcast, we're obsessed with mindset shifts in perspective. What are those routines? What are those things that shape the impactful moments of the lives of our leaders? And what are they doing to maintain that mindfulness and that mindset that allows them to lead? Uh, Tina talks about how she's just continued to have a coach throughout her career, what that does, how she implements those practical exercises with her team to better understand them so she can better understand how to lead and how to deliver messages that would resonate with them to motivate them. And she does all of that by understanding herself better. Uh, She's also got a family. She talks about how to raise a family during this process of continuing to grow in your career. And I think anyone listening is really going to take a lot away from it. So I'm excited to get into that. I do want to just remind everyone that we are continuing. The DC Local Leaders podcast has continued to partner with Northern Virginia Technology Council to bring you Let's Talk Tech with NVTC. It's a video series that you can find on our YouTube page as well as nvtc.org. So please continue to check those out. We've just recently put one out with Virginia Tech Innovation Campus. We've got another one coming up soon with Accenture. Our first one with the CTO of Appian is out now. And we're having a lot of fun just continuing to build these relationships with our both commercial and government technology industry. So really excited. Thank you to everyone who's been listening and subscribing and liking. And I know I've mentioned this group before. They are a veteran-owned technology company that has started their own app for podcast listing. It's called Notecast. Notecast is a podcast listing app that allows you to take notes directly from the app. You can tap the button 
that says transcribe, and it will transcribe a note for you, both audio and written note. You can have it texted or emailed to you. You can keep it in your phone as an audio note, something to come back to. So check out Notecast. I really want to support these guys. They started their company when they retired from Special Forces, doing some great things, and I really want to give them as much support as I can. So if you have some time, check that out. And now let's get into the episode. Uh, we're back with another episode. We're here today with Tina Dolph uh, at Siemens Government Technologies, SGT for short. <laughs> yes, that's what we'll call it the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah, SGT. Yeah, I don't want to have to say Siemens Government Technologies. Nobody does. Yeah. And you're doing your own thing, right? From well, Siemens. Yeah, well, actually, we've been our own entity for probably eight, nine years now, oh. 2008, I think it was. Um, and it's kind of a cool opportunity that Siemens has um, taken advantage of. So, you know, Siemens obviously is a German company. Yeah. So in order to be able to do business with the federal government and handle sensitive information, your U.S. government's not going to allow that information to go to foreign nationals or people who are not U.S. citizens. So what Siemens has done is set up Siemens Government Technologies as a subsidiary, wholly owned, but separate. So we're able to bring all of the technology that Siemens has to offer the market, and we can bring it to all parts of the government. So classified clients can use us, um, sensitive you know, areas where people um, need to touch sensitive information, Siemens without SGT would not be able to service that market. So, you know, it's a lot of why I came here is, you know, Siemens has got such a powerhouse full of innovative products and technologies and things that they couldn't access fully in the federal market. And now they can using SGT. So it's a pretty, pretty exciting uh, mission that we have here at SGT. You took over as CEO and president a couple years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've been here about two and a half years now. So I yeah. spent most of my career growing up in the federal space. So I spent, you know, time at Lockheed Martin and PAE and some of the big players ASRC there. For a ASRC while. for a little bit. Yeah. So um, it's been a great place to come here and then leverage my knowledge of the federal market and pair it with the technology that Siemens has. So it's been a pretty cool yeah. Cool opportunity. Well, when they were speaking to you, I mean, what was some of the things that drew you to Siemens? Like, what about Siemens was it that you were like, you know what, I want to be a part of this and I think I can lead this this company? Yeah, I think that the, the biggest piece for me was what they had to offer to the market. And I honestly, I'll be honest, before I got the phone call from the recruiter to consider it, I didn't really appreciate all that Siemens had, right? I knew them as a technology company. I knew them as controls. Like, like you go building to a systems. You go to a hotel and you, the thermostat in your hotel room yeah. is a Siemens thermostat. So like that's- Honeywell. You see Siemens, you see Hunt. It's like, oh, it's the thermostat people. Exactly, Phil, exactly. So, you know, what I didn't realize is Siemens is, you know, one of the top 10 providers of software on the planet. Mm. And if you look at the digital tools they have, um, they are leading and leading indicators on, you know, that market space. And if you think what the federal government needs, which is where my heart is, like I've been, I've, my whole career I have, have supported um, defense contractors in our military. My father did the same. My grandfather was in the military. So that's where my passion lies. And I always think about the soldier and how do we help support our men and women who are keeping us safe every day, right? Like if I'm going to leave my family every day to go do something for 90 or 100 hours a week, I want it to matter, right? So when I started to see what Siemens had to offer, and how to get that into the places that I care the most about, that was an exciting opportunity for me. Um, and then, then you start to meet the people here at SGT, and we just have some really incredibly innovative people and just fun people to work with. So you take all of that together, and it was really, 
really an easy decision to come join um, Siemens back a couple of years ago. Yeah, and you said you grew up in in the uh, in the government space, right? So I you've did. done a number of different things, and you know, president and CEO that's a that's a huge responsibility. And you know, I've talked to a number of different folks, and sometimes they didn't even see themselves in that kind of role. Was it something that you always sought out, or is it something you planned for? Or? No, I mean, I think if you had told my 22-year-old self that this is where I ended up, I would have told you you were a little nuts, right? Because um, my undergrad, I mean, I was a marketing major, right? And I came out of school in the early 90s. You know, I thought I was going to light it up as an advertiser, you know, advertising agency in New York City was my dream. Um, but then reality hit. <laughs> the early 90s was not the best time to be trying to find that kind of job. Um, the my small school I went to had a uh, recruiter from Lockheed. Well, at the time it was GE Aerospace before all the mergers. Yeah. GE Aerospace came on campus and they were starting this program. It was a financial management program, but they wanted kids in the program who didn't have necessarily financial backgrounds because they were trying to broaden and get more, you know, political science kids, sales kids, marketing kids like myself. So I ended up in that program. And honestly, I was like, okay, I'm just going to do this for like six months until I can find a real job because this is not sexy, right? Like this is not what I wanted to do. Um, and then I got into that program and it was such a fit. It turns out I'm pretty good with numbers. It turns out I'm a pretty good finance person. Um, and the program allowed me to train in different areas. So it was a training program like every six months for two and a half years, I got a different job. So I spent some time in auditing. I spent some time in program finance, spent some time in contracts. So you kind of got to try some things out. And at the same time, I started to get my MBA. And that was kind of part of the program is, you know. So as I started to do that, I was like, well, I'm, I'm kind of good at this. And then that's when I really started to learn about the mission of the government and what they did and how industry helped. I always thought they were separate, right? I always yeah. thought there was the military and the government and they did their thing and then there were companies. What I didn't appreciate until I started working in it is the true partnership. So I always say I was never brave enough to put on a uniform. Um, so the next best thing I could do is help those who were, right? And you really got that sense early in my career. Um, but then I went into, you know, in years, probably the first 15 years of my career were really in finance and numbers. And then I got to a point where, you know, we we're in a part of the company that was buying a lot of companies. So I got involved in mergers and acquisitions. And there's a lot, like when you're in that kind of environment and you're buying things quickly, it's like all hands on deck, right? So you had to, I started to help with the HR piece and I started to help with the operations piece. And that started to my head a little bit to, hey, there's more here than just finance. And how, how flat were these companies? Like how much access did you have to some of these decisions? And, and yeah, they know? were pretty flat because we were buying smaller niche companies because at the time I was with Lockheed. So, you know, what we would do is Lockheed would say, hey, we need a transition executive to help bring that company into the fold. Um, and I was lucky enough to get one of those positions. So now I'm responsible for making sure all of those pieces of that company got into Lockheed in a way that was helpful for both Lockheed and we didn't destroy the value of the company we just bought because that's always right. the trick, right? When you're trying to integrate a bunch of companies. So when I started to be able to get out of just finance and do other things, I was like, hey, I think I want to do more than, I kind of like the operations piece and I kind of like the HR piece. And I was really lucky to have mentors around me who helped me take that hard left, right? Because I was like, oh, I think I want to do this now. I, you know, I thought I was on the CFO track, right? And I'm like, I want to take hard left. So I had a lot of mentors and people around me who counseled me through that yeah. and gave me the opportunity to broaden my horizons a little bit. But to answer your initial question, it was never like, I was never a kid that was like, I have to be CEO, you know? It was more about, I want interesting work and I want to like the people that I work with. Yeah. So, you, and you went to Loyola? Uh, no, I went to Lemoyne College. It's a small Jesuit school in Syracuse, New York. Um, um, so yeah, it's a, I, you know, Wrong no, that's right. Big, big plug for the liberal arts colleges and, and yeah. all they do. Cause I think that's a big part of the success is learning how to think broadly. 
one of the things I was probably going to ask you anyway was about okay. mentorship and what that's done for you to influence, you know, what you've been able to do here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, learning from those people, when you think of like company culture right? yeah. and, and what you're setting up here, because as a leader, I mean, it's your, you put that in place. What do you think you've been able to take away uh, from some of those people that were mentors and how do you mentor the other folks uh, within your group to yeah. build that culture? Yeah, I think, you know, I think one thing you do as you move through, right, is you pick up along the way things you really resonate with and things you want to emulate, you know, like, wow, that's a really good leader. And then you also, if you're lucky, you have the exact opposite experiences sometimes, right? And you say, hey, that's not what I want. You know, I won't, I don't want to ever do that. I don't want to be like that. And you learn from both that as you kind of come along and you see what works for you. Um, so as I've kind of gone through my career, I think when I think about culture, the first thing, and this probably comes from the the supporting of the government, but the first thing that comes to mind is the mission of the organization, right? So like I always personally feel if I can resonate with the mission of the organization, then I can, I can want to care, right? I can want to love it and I want to get excited about it, you know? So I think you got to create that sense of mission for your employees, right? Like I want everybody to see what their piece is in our mission. Um, and we're lucky here, right? Because the mission is very important. It's very easy to see the the natural, hey, I want to support the soldiers. I want to report, I want to support the government. You know, it's easy. It's easy to get your heart into that, you know? So I think a lot about what's the mission of the company and how do I make that real for all of the people who are in the company? And it's hard, right? Because it's very, there's, everybody's geographically dispersed. Everybody, you know, so you've got to really think about how do you make that mission part for them, right? Um, the second part of our culture, and I think any culture that I think needs to be successful is before it's focused on anything else, it's focused on our people. You know, um, it's really about um, appreciating each other, learn how to work together as a team, embracing diversity. You know, like I have a couple executive coaches and I've been told one of my talents is that, you know, I get a lot of spices in my pot, right? So if you look at my team, we are very different people, right? And sometimes that creates some pretty spirited conversations, but it always gets us to a better place, right? Do you think being a, being a woman in leadership, you're, you're probably better at doing that or a little bit more open to doing that or I, I don't know if it's a male female thing as much as it is uh, you know how you're motivated right like um I do think there's a big and I think this was a relief for me as I kind of grew up like when I grew up in the early 90s we were still really command control kind of leadership right like the boss told us what to do they directed there was a lot of barking there was a lot of you know if you made a mistake let's come into a conversation you know, room and people would just yell at each other and so forth i am very happy to see that over at least the course of my career we're now starting to see a much more appreciation for the empathetic leader right and how do you i'm not the kind of person that if you yell at me i'm not going to perform well i'm going to i'm going to get nervous i'm going to get anxious i'm going to shut down um, so I never want to make anybody feel like that in my organization. Not that I'm not going to challenge you and not that I'm not going to hold you accountable for your results, but I'm going to do it in a way that you're heard, you're respected, and that makes you feel safe, right? So to me, I think it's, you know, are you a, are you a leader who is comfortable in that kind of, in that kind of environment? Um, because that's where I'm most comfortable. And I think most people, I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but I think most people fundamentally want, they want to be heard. They want to know that they're appreciated. They want to be able to have a say in their work. Um, now, with that comes some accountability, and you have to deliver, and that part makes people uncomfortable. And if you're not comfortable being accountable and delivering results, then my company probably isn't the place for you, right? right. But um, but if you are, and then we're going to help you, you know, by giving you a, uh, we work really hard to give you a environment that allows you to be yourself and be respected for who you are, so you can give us your best, right? If you're not feeling comfortable or safe, 
very hard for us to get the best out of you. And then we all lose because we, you know, the worst thing you can do is hire smart people and then like, you know, shut them down and not listen to them or have them, you know, feel like they can't share their ideas. Yeah. How do you, but how do you continue to work on that awareness? I mean, what are some of the things that you do as a leader, right? To, to maintain that, that empathy and to understand, I guess, yourself first, right? Mm-hmm. And how you operate. Cause you mentioned that, you know, you understand yourself and how these things affect you. And if they affect you, they probably affect other people. You're not like insane. I hope so, not, but right. <laughs> my husband may say I am, but <laughs> so, yeah. you know, with that in mind, like what do you, what are some of the things that you do, whether it's coaching or whatever it happens to be? Yeah. I think you, you got to surround yourself first with people who are going to hold that mirror up to you. Like I have a couple coaches, you know, and one I have that we, I use and my team uses, um, who is really, really good at being a strong mirror. Like he'll say, Hey, do I have the authority to be blunt? Do I have the freedom to be blunt with you right now? And you need someone to kind of say, hey, this is what I've seen you do, or this is what I've heard you do, which isn't in alignment with who I knew what you're trying to be. So you need people around you who are going to be able to um, say that to you, right? And then you've got to, you got to work really like on continuous learning all the time, right? Like, you know, what are those resources out there that you can, you know, books you can read, talks you can listen to, leaders you can observe that help kind of refresh in you how important appreciation is. And then when you catch yourself making a mistake, like there's days where I'm frustrated, right? And we'll be in a hard issue and I'll bark at somebody or I'll say something. And then like, I'm like, oh, that night over a glass of wine, like, really, I'm sure I didn't make Tom feel really great today. You know, um, tomorrow I'm going to try to go back and make that better. So you, you know, address it and, and you, you... You try. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you hurt, you know, you make, make people feel bad and you don't realize you did it, you know, but if you try to be aware of it and I think people see you trying, then they're willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. Like if... Yeah, you I know. think it's it's probably, I mean, I would receive it very differently if you came back to me and said, look, you know, I I think, you know, we got heated yesterday. Whatever you said, right? right. I, I shouldn't have spoken to you that way. I'll try to do better in the future. However, like at the moment, I was upset about these things. We right. can address it. And that's a very different thing from you doing it and just, we never, like, it just, that's how you talk to me now. Right, right. The other thing that we do as a team, like we have, we have, we set aside time in sessions. Like we're going to do one in a couple of weeks where we spend, my, my leadership team spend the whole day together with our coach and we work on different things, right? And sometimes one of the things we work on is just getting to know each other better, right? Because if you can kind of figure out why you're wired the way you are. And if I can understand that, then when you react to something, it's maybe not so much that you're being difficult or obstinate. It's like, oh, well, I know this about Philip and I just stepped on something that he's going to be sensitive to. So that's as much my fault as yours, right? So like, like couple just, counseling. yeah, just couples counseling, yeah, couples counseling, but for the whole team, you know what I mean? So it's like marriage counseling, but for the executive team. And it does, it makes a difference. You know, I think it makes a, it gives people, you know, a little bit more space to say, hey, okay, Tina's not being a jerk. Tina's just, I know that really is upsetting to her and I triggered her, you know what I mean? So where'd that, where'd that come from? Who, who put that in place? Was that something that, you know, when you got here, you decided like, Hey, this is how we need to operate. You probably, well, there was a, the coach I think was here when I got here, but like, you know, back to the mentoring, you know, early on, I had a mentor who really emphasized with us the importance of, you know, getting a coach and getting someone to work with the team and trying to get outside of just the boardroom and have your interaction be about people. So I kind of got trained in that. Um, and then I saw it work, right? Um, and even in my graduate work, I did work on high-performing teams. And the one thing you find out about a high-performing team is that the people generally respect, they don't have to like each other, but that they respect each other, they understand each other, and they're all moving towards a common goal. So you got to kind of work on all those things, right? You got to make sure that the goal and the mission is clear, and then you got to make sure everybody understands their piece in it. And then we got to kind of work together. So it's, I just got to, I was lucky enough to get to see that work well in my career, that every place I've been, there's been, 
you know, some people have had full-time coaches, some people have coaches they bring in every now and then, but that whole idea of leadership development, like you don't just do it once, right? right. You've got to do it. It's a continuous It's a thing. continuous journey. It's like working out. You mm. can, if you work out once, it's not going to do anything. And even if you lose, say, five or 10 pounds, if you stop doing the things that have helped you be there, exactly. you're not going to keep it, right? And it doesn't mean it's going to come back the very next day. I have this mm. habit of relating everything we do to working out, so you'll notice. <laughs> well, I like that, to work out too, so yeah. we can have we can we have that in common. Yeah, we're gonna. I mean, look, it's, but it's. I think that there is an overlap between psychology and physiology, mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a great way to describe it. It is like if I stop practicing the diet that helped me stay fit or feel healthy, and then I'm no longer feeling healthy or looking fit or feeling fit. Well, the other thing too from that step, I think about like I always think the cruelest thing about working out right, is it takes you months and months to get in top shape. Then you take two weeks off yeah. and you, so you start it over again, right? Like that's how your body works. That's how your brain works. That's how your emotions work. So like if you don't keep working on it, yeah. then when you come back, the work is even that much harder because you're starting over and sort one, of. Yeah. It sounds like one coaching mm-hmm. session, one, whether it's therapy or coaching or whatever you happen to call it, I think it all adds up. One session isn't going to do much, even one month. But if you right. continue to work on these things, because a lot like physical therapy, mm-hmm. you know, any kind of psychotherapy or coaching. They give you stuff to do. Yeah. They don't like, <laughs> right. we pay them to talk yeah. to us for an hour and then give us months worth of homework. Exactly. Today. Right. It's like, um, what have you done? They're like, oh, shoot, I forgot, you know. Yeah, but it's, it's true. Like, but you got to do the work. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and it's important, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, you were talking earlier about um, just how much things have changed uh, in organizations and the way leaders talk to, speak to, you know, folks in the company, subordinates, mm-hmm. whatever we call them. You know, this area has changed a lot from 1999, the mid-90s to now. Uh, Internet, right, Mm -hmm. had a big thing that had a lot to do with that, the dot-com boom. But then being in this area in particular, do you feel like we have a bit of an advantage, especially servicing the federal government? And how have you seen it change? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's been interesting. If you in the defense industry long enough, you kind of see this pattern of up and down, up and down, right? Like we, um, when I first joined the industry, like everybody was kind of separate. And then we started realizing there were synergies. You see companies you know, buying each other up, you know, like I said, for the first couple of years of my career, I never left my desk, but I had four different bosses, right? Because I was GE Aerospace, they sold to Martin Marietta, Martin Marietta merged with Lockheed, you know, so it just is this kind of constant changing and morphing. And you learn that the defense industry is um, a really small knit town for such a big organ, such a big, you know, like, you know, community, because we're all kind of in this together. So I think, you know, that and watching it respond, right, as the, the, you know, technology has definitely, you said the internet technology, I think has been the largest single, you know, driver of that. When you think about your know, world events and what does the, you know, what do the government have to do? What's, what are the threats that we have to, you know, protect the country against? What are, you know, before it was ground wars, right? We always thought we, the military always talks about being ready for the next fight, right? So what's the next fight, right? Well, now the next fight is a cyber war, right? And how do we protect our resources and our assets and intelligence and all that stuff? So I think that has really changed the industry just from how fast it moves, you know, people used to say, oh, the government's so slow, we're like, you can't afford to be slow anymore, because, you know, our adversaries aren't slow, right? They're moving quickly. So I think technology has really changed how quickly we move as an industry. Um, it, yeah, it's been, it's been definitely a driver of change. Yeah, and I think going back to what you said earlier, I think the, the federal contracting industry, probably more so the defense, but, but mm-hmm. all of it is a great way to see just how much small business supports the federal government. Mm-hmm. We, we always hear this thing that small business is the heart of America and it pro- like that mm-hmm. props up the American economy. And it, it just, I, it's taking on a new meaning. The more I understand and the more I, I, I get to know about it because the government doesn't actually perform a whole lot of work 
on its own. Right. It does, but right. through small business. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a whole ecosystem. It really, it's just an ecosystem from like, you know, you know um, and having been with mostly large companies throughout my career, I've spent some time in a few smallers, but that ecosystem between even the large companies and the small companies, right? Like us large companies often will mentor the smaller ones. Um, and then as the smaller ones graduate, I always think, I always have such respect for entrepreneurs who start a small company in the federal space and then are able to grow it to large because as you start to graduate, up the chain, you now, I used to be Tina Dolph Incorporated, just competing with these small companies. I graduate and now I got to compete with the Boeings of the world and the, the Raytheons of the world. And it's a hard change to make. But if we don't do that successfully, then the ecosystem starts to suffer. So you do have to make sure that all parts of it stay healthy through, um, through good competition and, and including the small businesses in that equation. You as a leader, as, as, as an entrepreneur of a one or two person company is probably a different person uh, as a leader in, you know, a thousand plus, 1600 plus multiple thousands persons company, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, and in those inflection points of doing $10 million worth of business, but now you're doing 30, right. Right. And now you're doing 50 and you're very, you have to, I, I would assume you have to work on different skill sets and become a different person. Do you think that's true? I do. I do. I think as you grow and you get larger, there's you know, the more, you know, it's this age old adage, like what got you here isn't going to get you there. Right. And like even SGT, we're kind of going through that a little bit was, you know, when we first got set up, there was nothing here. Like Siemens created an investment, um, hired some executives to start this entity and wanted to grow in the federal space. So at that phase, it's all about winning new contracts, right? You've got to win, you've got to get yourself out there. But then like, what's that saying? The dog who catches the bus, right? Like then you catch the bus, right? Then now you're still got to win, but now you got to operate these really big complex contracts. Well, that's a different skill set than it is just winning them. Right. So now you've got to make sure you, you have the people that can continue to win more for you. But now you got to figure out how are you going to operate then get the right skills into your organization so you can operate these contracts effectively. Right. So then it starts to snowball. Right. And then like we started with a smaller contract with the TSA. Right. Now we we are serving all the almost all the federal agencies and I'm doing everything from energy savings, performance contracts and building controls to digitally modeling all the Navy shipyards. Right. Very different skill set, right? I need IT engineers. I need engineers who understand energy and environment. So you've got to start to um, kind of scale. And it is, I think it does take a different kind of leaders. Like I think I've never been an entrepreneur. I've never been somebody who started something from scratch. I'd like to someday, right? But I think, wow, that's going to stretch my skills because I've never done that. Where like I have a girlfriend of mine who started her business and she's like, I don't know how you do what you do. And I'm like, what I do is easy compared to what you do. And it's just because what we know, right? Like I know I've been in large organizations. I know how to help them scale. I know how to help them win. Um, Where to start with like a blank piece of paper and have to go raise money and figure out customers like I've never done that. That sounds terrifying, you know. Um, yeah. So it does. It does. I think take different kinds of skill sets depending on the business structure that you've that you've got. At least generally. And there's, then, of course, there's always the ones that you need good leadership, regardless of the size of your business. You need to be able to get under, recognize good talent and get them in and turn things over to them, and not have an ego that you think you're the smartest person in the room. So there's certain, you know, I think elements of regardless of what kind of company you're leading are important. But then it does become specialized as you as you get to different areas and different complexities, I think. I do want to, like, I just ask, just because I've been told by some other, like, specifically women in leadership, mm-hmm. that the conversation around their ability to lead and their opportunities to lead have significantly changed over, like, the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And it a lot of it was that there was sort of some pushback on them being a woman and actually being in charge and... And yeah. like that. have you experienced any of that or like talks? Cause I think that's going to help a lot of women that may still 
be experiencing that or feeling that way or mm-hmm. you'll be able to offer some advice on that but yeah i mean there's yeah you have these moments like in your life and your career that just stick out right and there's one i remember um where i was competing for a job with uh, uh an, another individual and we were it was one of those situations where the leader of the organization was retiring right and um there was a couple of us underneath that leader that were good candidates for um the uh that replacement and um, I, I often give credit to this gentleman because at least he had the guts to say this to my face as opposed to behind my back. So I give him credit for that. But when they picked me, he came back and said, you know, and it was kind of your, your kind of backhanded kind of compliment. He's like, yeah, congratulations. That's really good for you. I mean, we all knew you were going to get it because you're a girl and all, but you know, I think you're going to do a good job. Right. And I was torn down. Right. Because I, in my, I was younger. Right. And it was my first kind of real big job where I was, um, knew I had a bunch of people to lead and it was also complicated because I was the group I was going to lead was, you know, yesterday they were my coworkers and today they're my employees, right? So I, I felt like the pressure to make sure they understood that now I had a different responsibility in the organization. And I remember going to my mentor and I was like, you know, distraught. I was like, this guy, like, can you believe that if he's, and I, and I quickly let myself believe if he believes that everybody thinks that. Right. And that was a big mistake because the reality was he was just kind of a short sighted individual. Right. And what that person, what my mentor said to me was, you can't change how they think about you. Right. What you can change or what you can influence is doing a good job and performing. So they shut up. Right. So he's like, don't get yourself wrapped in in the thoughts of what other people are thinking. Focus on doing a really good job. And if you perform and do well, the chatter will stop. You know, and that's what I think. Like every time I think I've gotten to that step where you feel like you get challenged or it's different, I really try to concentrate on performing. Um, And I do think, you know, there are times in those situations I probably had to perform better than he would have had he gotten the job, right? Because there was this expectation that, oh, let's see if she can do this, right? Um, And that's just the reality of it, right? And I think it happens. It happens in gender. I think it happens in age. I also, you know, came to um, leadership responsibilities younger than others, you know, and I, like my current, you know, a current, my current CFO and I just had this conversation because he, same thing happened to him. And when you're coming into leadership young and female, right, then it's even harder, right? Because even if people don't have the, 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 the rose glass, the glasses on that color it because you're female, it's like, wow, she's only, she's only 32. What's she now? You know, so you're always kind of proving yourself. So you kind of got to let that chatter just go away. If you can, it's hard. We're human beings, right? So it's hard to do that. But if you can focus on performing and figuring out how you're going to succeed with the team and engaging the people around you to help you do that, it starts to fall away, you know? Um, so that's, that's kind of how I, I kind of use that to fuel the, all right, I'll show you. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds <laughs> you know? like, so I was going to add, like, how do you think that that's actually helped you? Mm-hmm. Like the passive aggressive sort of compliment or mm-hmm. just like a little bit of that. I don't think she's going to, she's good enough. Or like, did you ever feel like maybe you weren't enough or what did you do with that to help? It sounds like that's kind of helped you in a way. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think like there's a name for it, right? Like people call it imposter syndrome. Do you ever feel like you get the end of the day, like fooled him again, you know? Um, Yeah, I think you do think that, right? Um, But I think if you can focus on what the task is at hand, for me, it helps just, you know, keep me focused on what we're doing, you know, and opposed not to get wrapped up in the emotion of it. And that becomes, I think, very important as you get higher up in the organization, especially when you're dealing with a tough issue when many of the people are around the table who are fired up about whatever you're talking about, it starts to become an emotional conversation. And I'm an emotional person, so it is very easy for me to get sucked into that quickly, right? So how you how you try to avoid that is focusing on the facts and the, the, the mission at hand, like what are we trying to get done? So I think having that experience early on, knowing, you know, it's about I got to deliver 
whatever it is, the thing to the customer, the financials to the company, whatever the thing is that we're working on, I have got to deliver that and that's on me. So I've got to figure out how to get the team to see that as well. So I think having to prove myself earlier, I think did help me um, get better at that maybe earlier than I would have if I hadn't had that challenge. So yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So to other people listening and, and women and, and also but every everyone, mm-hmm. um, you'd probably say, you know, stretch yourself, like yeah. try the thing that you don't think you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think like you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Like any, you know, many of the jobs I've taken this one included, there's that moment where you're in your, your stomach, you're like, oof, yeah. can I do this? Like, what have I got myself into? Right. Um, yeah. Because that's when you grow. You know, back to your working out, you're yeah. working out for your, you know, conversation, like your muscles hurt when you stretch them, right? right. So like, it's going to hurt a little bit, and it's going to be a little challenging, but that's where the greatest satisfaction yeah. comes to, right? So once you've done that, and you can get on the other side, you're like, wow, look what I yeah. did, you know? Um, but you got to move. Better. Yeah, you got to take, you got to say yes, and be willing to take some chances. Um, and it's scary. I mean, it's scary at times, but that's what you've got to do, I think. Yeah. Did you ever, so, but what did you, how did you deal with uh, going from being colleagues to now being in charge? Because that's the thing that I think for leaders within an organization may experience that a lot, right? Because you now, you're just one of the team and then all of a sudden maybe you get promoted out or you take over a department or something like Mm -hmm. that, or you get into the C-suite from director level Mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that instance, like what I did, I remember like, you know, I just pulled, it was a small team. There was only like eight of us or 10 of us. So it wasn't hundreds of people or anything, you know, but I remember just pulled everybody in the organization. I said, Hey guys, like, you know, we need to talk about this, right? Like I am, I'm in a different responsibility now and, you know, we have to figure out how, what that's, what's that going to mean for us and how are we going to work? But you guys need to understand that, you know, I'm in a different position and I'm going to need your help as I transition to this, you know, so we talked about it. Right. And then, you know, some people were, you know, great. You know, some of my my, my my more friends, I would say, were like, yay, Tina, but the people who were on the team of the other guy, like I had to win them over a little bit, you know, so, but I always found in any situation, just trying to get it out of the, you know, instead of having everybody talk about it in the hallways and the water cooler, get it into the table and let's talk about it here. And then and there's been other times, like other jobs I've taken where there was an incumbent, you know, who thought they had the job and then they hire me from the outside and now I've got this person on my team. Right. So um, when I, you know, when I, in those situations, same thing, I just sat down with that individual and be like, hey, you know, I I didn't create this situation. You didn't create this situation. We both have a choice here, right? We can try to work together or we can make each other's lives miserable. I'd prefer not to do that, (laughs) you know, and it, you know, you can't, you can't control how the other person's going to respond. But again, like just get it out on the table so you can talk about it, Um, which is probably just a general good rule on being a human being, right? Like just talk it out, Um, but try to address it so it doesn't become you know, the hallway talk, because that's what you can't control hallway talk and you can't, and then it starts to feed on itself and people get distracted. And that's the last thing you need when you're a leader, you know? And that's, but that's leadership right there. I mean, where'd you get that? Was that your coach kind of saying, look, meet this head on or did you have? Yeah, I think some of it, I mean, yeah, some of it, yes. I mean, some of it is like the one I would say, the coach that I have now that I use real closely, like before I even started here, the first thing that he said to me that was really stuck in my head was, he's like, don't forget, like you're the CEO. So you set the culture. Whatever you are, the company will become. He's like, so you got to think about that, you know, and that's, he's right. Like at first I was like, yeah, yeah, right. But no, he's right. Like they, and I had a mentor. (laughs) I always tell um, this story. People who know me will have heard it. But um, I remember when I got promoted to, I would say my first significant role at Lockheed, um, I had a mentor who was, you know, there and she congratulated me. And, um, but the one thing she said to me in that conversation, she's like, well, something like, like, welcome to the club. Like, what do you mean? She's like, well. She's like, oh, I'm going to say to you, and we happened to be in the ladies' room when this conversation was happening, but he's, she's like, I'm just going to say to you, you know, they watch you put your lipstick on. 
that's how closely they're watching you. You know, they watch you put your lipstick on, they watch what shoes you wear, they watch how you treat people. So just remember that what you do is how this company, how your organization is going to react. So don't ever forget that. And that's where I think I get the whole, like if you have a bad day and you make a mistake and you do something you're not proud of, you can try to ignore it and let everybody talk about it, or you can come back the next day and address it and put it to bed. And she kind of helped me with that. Like, you know, just remember that's, you know, your goal is to get everybody to be the best they can be on your team because that's when the company is best served, yeah. right? So how do you do that, right? You've got to, you know, make sure they're heard, make sure that they, and nobody's perfect at it. Like, you know, some of my, some of my employees maybe listen to this at some point and be like, she doesn't do that every day, you know, and none of us do, right? But we try. And I think that's the, the important part is you try and you try to be sincere in, in that as a goal. And sometimes you screw it up <laughs> and sometimes you don't, you know, but I think there's, there's that that I've just seen it work, you know? And I, and I think a lot of it is too, just think about how you want to be treated. Like, do you want to go to a job where you're not heard or not appreciated or your boss is a jerk and never apologizes? Like, no, like nobody wants that, you know? So I think if you think about how to motivate yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's where, that. you for most people, that's where they spend the majority of their day, mm-hmm. right? And I've been told by a few other, other folks, other leaders, right, mm-hmm. that, uh, and I'm going to probably butcher this a little bit, but it's some version of, where you are at your worst is what people are going to, you know, identify you as mm-hmm. in, in a way. Not that they're looking to find something wrong with you, right. but just like, you know, the idea that they're, they're watching you put your lipstick on, like mm-hmm. everything. Like if you mm-hmm. are emotional and disheveled over something, that, that's going to leave a lasting impression or that's right. what they're going to see you. Mm-hmm. That's what they're going to remember about your leadership. And that's what they're going to feel about the culture of this company. Right. And it's a lot of awareness, a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the more you work on that awareness... Um, it seems to help because right. you're. Le- I think that we're less likely to react to uh, to feelings and, and focus on the facts, right? Because right? Right. feelings aren't fact. Just right. because I happen to believe it doesn't make it true. They don't all hate me. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? They didn't wake up today and say, you know what, let's go find Philip. Right, yeah. You know <laughs> yeah, let's go take him down. Yeah, you know, but that, exactly. and that goes to mm-hmm. You, you mm-hmm. setting up that culture and making sure, do you, like belonging and fitting in, I think are different things, right? And I've been told a couple different things mm-hmm. about it. Did you ever feel like you were trying to fit in uh, but didn't really belong? Or do you feel like you're like, what do you think about those? And what do you do with that with your culture within the company? Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, and that's the really important part. I think, you know, a sense of belonging is when you feel like you really, this is this is where I'm meant to be, right? It's it, whatever you're doing aligns with what you're passionate about. It's an environment that you fit in. Where if you feel like you're, if you feel like you're having to fit in and you're not fitting in, there's an element in the environment or the culture that is making that hard for you, right? You know, um, it's interesting. We just did with my team, um, we just, we all redid our disc profiles, right? That's just really talks about um, DISC as a leadership a, a tool that you can do to say what kind of person or what kind of environment do you like to work in. Um, and I think as a leader, your goal is to try to make an environment that is accepting as an open of as many people as it can be, right? So that way, again, if I can create an environment where people are safe to be who they are, now within, obviously within reason, like I'm not going to, you know, we're not going to, there's certain behaviors we are not going to tolerate, right? Like we're not going to tolerate, you know, racism. We're not going to tolerate, you know, people who bullying each other. You know, those things are not acceptable in our culture. But, you know, besides that, you want to create a culture that allows people to be themselves so they can feel like they belong. Otherwise, they're always going to feel like they're fitting in. And to some element, like we all have to fit in a little bit, but I think you're, you truly perform best when you feel like you belong. And that's, it's on you as much as it is on your leader or your company, right? Like you've got to figure out what, what inspires you or what, you know, makes you feel like you belong. You know, like I said earlier, for me, it's mission, right? Like what's the company do? It's mission and it's the people I work with. 
right? Um, for somebody, some other people, it might be people I work with and the money I make, you know, whatever it is, but you've got to figure that out for yourself and then look for an environment that yeah. you truly can belong in. Um, cause if you, if you're, I know you thought if I, I've got, cause we all, we've all had it. You've been in environments where you're like, eh, this isn't, this isn't like for a while I was in, in some environment, an environment where like the leadership was so, so smart, but their management style was so different than mine. I actually for a while thought, well, I'm not ever going to be a leader, leader, big leader, like a CEO type leader, because I don't have that. That I didn't fit in, right, um, from in who I was. And I was confusing that, you know, to fit in is what you need to be a leader. And the reality is to be a truly good leader, you have to be authentic, right? Like how I work isn't necessarily going to be how you're going to work. And you can't pretend to be me and I can't pretend. Well, we can. We can try that. Right. We can try to pretend to be each other, right? But eventually it starts to fall apart because people start to see through the cracks and they realize, hey, she's not really, not she's faking it. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, if you can, if you can create as a leader a place where most people – feel like they can belong that's like perfect right but it's that's it's yeah. not easy and fitting in doesn't mean that you know it's not synonymous with being qualified right you know you're trying to fit in doesn't mean and it doesn't mean that you're not mm -hmm. right because you don't fit in right uh, but it's interesting you mentioned that there is some responsibility on the individuals not just the leaders right, right. to create that culture but for you also as an individual if you're a part of that to make an attempt um mm -hmm. you know it's it could be simple stuff. Don't wear sweatpants to work. Like we're not. Yeah. That's not what yeah. Yeah. Do, you know? Right. Or right. Right. Just, you know, you have to decide that this is actually something you want. You can't make it all about you. Right. Um, right. And I think, you know, and that's just awareness for every individual. Yeah. Too. And then you've got to be clear like this is a kind of silly example, I suppose. But like you might people will tell you like when I first got here, people were complaining about like in the federal government, when you do work, you have to do time cards every day. Right. Because you have to record your time to where it goes. And it's not negotiable like that is what it is. Right. And we I got here and everyone's like, oh, my God, you know, people aren't doing their time cards. And it's, I'm like, well, it's not optional. Like to your point about fitting in, like, I can't, if you don't want to do your time cards, you can't work here. Like, that's how, so in my first all hands, I got up and said, hey, like, you don't have to do your time cards, but you don't have to work here either. Like, that's the, cho that's the choice. Like, so that piece, you got to fit in, right? You know what I mean? There's certain things that are not negotiable, but from, you know, belonging in a culture and, you know, what their day-to-day -day work is that I think you have to, so you've got to kind of figure out what are the pieces of the culture that you can force, that you're forced to fit into, and is that comfortable for you? Um, and if not, then you probably should try to find something else to do, you know? But it's, yeah, it's an interesting, um, it is important because I think where people feel they belong, that's where they'll perform, Yeah, you know? It's a lot to do. I mean, you, are you, yeah, yeah it sounds like a lot, right? It sounds <laughs> yeah. like you're pretty busy. I mean, you have, you have family, you have kids. I know you're married. I can see your ring. I do. So yeah. Yeah. Have I have two. And... Yeah, I do. My husband, Larry, and I've been married, what, 28 years now, a long time. And we've got two kids, uh, Michaela and Tyler. Um, uh, Tyler is, uh, just graduated from Northeastern University up in Boston. He'll be 24 this year and Michaela will be 20. She's a freshman down at Belmont University. So my husband and I are now figuring out the semi quasi empty nest because yeah. we only have my daughter now on, on summers and vacations and stuff. So we're at a, did you get rid of his room? Um, no, not yet. Not yet. I can't bring myself to do it. No. They're still you my babies. Like no, 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 no. I can't, you know, my husband, I think might be ready to do that, but I'm like, no, no, I can't. They're still going to come home someday. I know it. <laughs> yeah, but they could share a room. Like the, you know, they don't need their. Exactly. You sound just like my husband. That's I, the practicality well, I, piece of it. I don't it. know. Yep. I just yep. feel like if they're gone. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. What, um, what kind of work yeah. is he? What kind of Tyler, right? Yeah. What kind of work is he doing? Yeah. He, he yeah. He works. He's a video content creator. So he does. He actually works for a company called Everbridge, who's a software company that does. Um, so he's in there, you know, uh, media and production. So he does everything from creating videos to content creation and um, so forth. So he's very blessed that, you know, he was able to find the job, you know, this quickly right out. He's graduated in December. So 
he's pretty excited. Now it's odd with, you know, with COVID and starting remotely, that's been a little tough for the kids, I think, because they're, it's harder to bond a little bit, but hopefully as we start to crawl out of that and things start to return to some level, maybe of our new normal, whatever that looks like, he can get back in the office and meet kids and stuff like that. So he'll be good. How do you think, you know, you being in a leadership role and, and you have been in a couple different companies for a while, especially it sounds like during their teenage years, how do you think Mm -hmm. that, what, did that, what do you think that did to them to affect them to see you working that hard or being in those roles? Do you think that had an effect on what they chose to do or what how they view showing up to a workplace? Yeah, I think so. It's funny uh, you say that because um, a couple, I guess it was maybe Michaela was a junior in high school and we were doing the college tour. So we actually went back to my alma mater at Lemoyne because they were having a women's um, weekend and they wanted me to be on a panel. So we were there, but she was touring the campus while we were there. So we went and I talked to a couple um, classes of seniors who were business students getting ready to graduate. And the te- one of the teachers asked Michaela that. They asked her that same thing. She's like, you know, what did you think about, because there was a period of time when I worked for PAE that I was on the road a lot, you know, Africa, Afghanistan, you know, Iraq, places like that. So I'd be gone for weeks like at a time, travel, like, like real travel. Like, yeah, these people talk about like they got to go to San Diego. I'm like, yeah, uh huh. Until you wear a bulletproof vest and a helmet, you're not in, you know. Um, but you know, she, she, it was interesting because the professor asked her that, and my daughter said, you know, at the time, I was just sad that my mom was gone, right? Because I want my mom there. She's like, but as I've gotten older, I really appreciate what she did, and I didn't get that when I was a kid. You know, as a mom, I was like, oh, thank God. Because as a mom, you worry, right? Like, all you know is when they're little, especially, is that you're not there and, you know, what happens and, and, and God forbid they get sick when I'm halfway around the world, what's going to happen? You know, so you worry that, oh, they felt abandoned where she never felt that way. And now I think she understands better what that looks like. So she's yeah. like, you know, my mom's pretty cool, but I didn't realize that when I was eight. <laughs> yeah. do, you, were, you know? do you think they were ever afraid for you? Like if you weren't, like you're out in those kind of environments and doing the work. That you're yeah, doing. I don't know if when they were little, they really understood. Like one of the funny stories from that time period was um, my parents would be very nervous, especially my mom um, when I was traveling in uh, those kind of places. So my husband and I would often not tell her until I got home, right? Because it was just like, let's not worry or because that's just cruel, right? So there was a time when I was, I think I was in Iraq. And my mom had called my house and my husband was in the shower and Michaela was probably maybe 10, 11, old enough to answer the phone. You know what I mean? So, you know, she answered the phone. She's like, hey, Nana, you know, um, and my mom, I think, knew I was traveling maybe. But anyway, she's like, hey, mom. Um, She's like, is is your dad there? And uh, Michaela's like, oh, no, he's in the shower. Um, He's like, well, how about your mom? That's what she said. How about your mom? Is your mom there? My daughter's like, no, no, she's in Iraq. She just blurts it out, right? So, like, next thing, I, you know, of course, I don't know that conversation, but then my, I'm over in Iraq. It's like four in the morning. My phone starts blowing up. It's my mom, you know? <laughs> Call me. She's like, what are you doing? How are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. So, um, so I don't think my kids ever really. Was this, was this, uh, this was probably, gosh, probably 2011, 10, 11. So, um, okay. Yeah, we were coming out of, you know, we were at that point in Iraq, what was happening was the State Department was moving in and create and building consulates and converting some of the DOD locations into consulates. So that's what the company I did was we were there with State Department um, building those things. So, um, so yeah, I don't think my kids really understood all of, I mean, Tyler might have, he was a little older. I don't think they really worried about, you know, I don't think they ever thought about me not being safe. I think they were just like, is mom going to be home for pizza night? You right. know? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you know, but the other, <laughs> the other part of that is that, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Right. Right. I would have never started a podcast if I didn't know a podcast was a thing. Right. 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 So what do you think that does it, for her? Right. You know, you being a woman in leadership, but also for your son, though, mm-hmm. doing some of the things you've done and, and taking some of the chances, stretching yourself, learning the things. What do you think that have they mentioned anything of, to you about like what choices they made in majors in college or the way that they view what they can do in the workplace versus what's, a you know. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I think what it instilled in them was that they saw, you know, they saw, well, I think, you know, the other, they saw a couple of things, right? They saw what hard work looks like, right? They saw what it can give you, right? Um, um, the other thing that I think for, at least for our family, it showed was like my husband and I made a conscious decision, right? Like when we first started, we met in college, we first started working, got out of school, both had jobs, right? When Tyler, up until when Michaela was born, um, even after Michaela was born, we both still worked. And then it got to a point where my job, I was getting to that point in my career where like that next step was going to be hard, right? Cause it meant I didn't really control my calendar anymore. And, you know, I worked a lot in proposals and stuff. So her proposals do, like, you don't go home at five o'clock, right? And it got hard and it started to get, my husband and I started to argue, right? Because he'd be like, well, you said you could pick her up at five. And I'm like, I can't because the pricing's not done and it's wrong and I can't leave. And the, all that kind of conversation starts. So we made a decision when we moved down here. I got promoted and we moved um, from New Jersey down to here in Virginia. And he stopped working for a little bit and until he could figure out what we were going to do. And then he ended up starting his own business. But what I think my kids got to see was the flexibility of a family working together to figure it out, right? And it and there's not necessarily traditional roles. Like my kids will tell you, like my son will even say, oh, I want to be a stay-at-home dad like dad because that, because he got, he got to see all the fun, you know what I mean? Or when you're a kid, it seemed like fun. Now my husband worked harder than I did because he had all the, he was working and he had to do, you know, especially when I was traveling, take care of all the kids stuff and working, you know, so he actually had it harder, but the kids didn't see that, right? The kids were like, hey, dad's home to play, you know? Um, but I think that to me is the best thing our kids learned is, you know, you figure it out together as a family and, you know, anybody can be what they want to be. And if you work hard, that's available to you, you know? So I think when I think about what, and at the time I didn't, you know, as you're going through it, you just hope to God you get it right. Right. You know, and you're like, um, and I also often felt for my husband because back then, like we were reversed. We would joke about it, right? We'd go to, he'd go to the bus stop and be the only dad and I'd go to the boardroom and be the only woman, right? Like not, you know, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, oh, right. but you know, um, so we were a little backwards. Now I think I'm happy to see it's a little bit more mainstream and families, I think generally try to figure it out. I think we are starting to do better around, it doesn't, you know, a woman doesn't have to have certain roles. A man doesn't have to have certain roles. You can figure it out together. And I'm happy that we could show my kids that you know, um, and make sure that the, you put your family in the center of that conversation. Because I think when you don't, then it becomes really, really hard. Like if I had just decided to take that job without getting my husband's support and buy-in, um, and in fact, I probably wouldn't have taken if he hadn't pushed me because I was actually more worried about the, the demands on my time than he was, you know, but if you don't do that together as a family, then it gets hard, you know, and then it gets messy. And then, you know, so I think, I think that's probably the biggest thing my kids saw as we were as we were growing up. Yeah, I mean, you've got an ongoing theme of just open communication. Sounds like with your family and mm -hmm. with people that you work with and how you lead and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And So, I mean, is that, do you mentor other women that, because there's other women leaders that are probably looking up to you um, or rising leaders, right? Maybe they're in those certain roles where they're continuing to gain more responsibility, but maybe, you know, they might be late 20s, early 30s, and now they're starting a family. I mean, how mm -hmm. do you, what are you going to do? I mean, well, I love people usually that question usually comes to me and like, you know, what, how to explain to me how you balanced work in life or what's work life balance, you know, and I've thought about it a lot. And, you know, I think about it now is there's not really balance, right? It's maybe over the long period, over like the long game of your 35 year career, there's some kind of balance, but in the moment you've kind of got to realize what has to take priority now because you can't do everything. Like you physically, remember like when I was growing up in the 80s, it was like super women, they can do everything, right? Well, that was just a fallacy, right? Like all that does is get you into like a mental state of craziness, right? Um, but I think what you can do and I actually got this advice from a gentleman I worked for for a while. You know, we were traveling and I can't remember what was going on, but I was afraid I was missing something at home, you know, and he's like, and um, he was like, you know, can I just give you a piece of it? Because he was a dad and he had four daughters and stuff like that. He's like, the best thing I can kind of tell you is wherever you're going to be, be there. 
So if you're at work and you got to be at work, be at work. Don't be fretting or beating yourself up because you're not, you know, at the preschool, you're not at this. And just when you're on, when you're with your family, be with your family. So when you're at your kid's soccer game, don't be on your email. If you can now, obviously there's emergencies that pop up and you can't do this all the time, but as a guiding principle, like wherever you're going to be, be. Right. And then that means, you know, if I've got to concentrate on work right now because it's a busy period of time, then that's where I've got to be focused. That's what I'm going to do. And then I try to explain that to my family and vice versa, you know, and, and at work, if there's something for my family that's important and I have to go do that, you know, try to arrange that. But like, it's not like every day is a balance. Like, if I will never, I will tell you, I never felt like I was in balance, right? I feel like I was trying to manage all the pieces. Um, and I think I was very lucky to have, I think the other thing that's really important about, I would tell young women is, consider who you surround yourself around, right, around you, right, because your support system is incredibly important, right, so you, I've been very lucky to have a husband who's been very supportive, right, and we've worked on this together, I've had a lot of, you know, male and female comment, you know, colleagues who didn't have that, you know, like, we, when I would travel, my husband was great, like, I would travel, like, I had a chance to go to China and to Russia, and he's like, you're gonna see the Great Wall, right, I'm like, well, I don't know, it's like Saturday, I should fly home, and he's like, it's the Great Wall, you gotta go see the Great Wall, like you're right. Like what's wrong with you? Where I'm like, but if I get home on the early plane, I can go home the two o'clock soccer game, blah, blah, blah. So he was always very, go do, you got that opportunity. He wasn't pressuring me. He knew how much I hated to be away from him and the kids anyway. Right. So I had that support. If I didn't, I don't think I have this job today. Right. Because if you don't have that kind of, and it doesn't have to be your husband, it can be your best friend or your mom or your dad or your brother, whoever it is, is in your world. If you need people around you who are going to help support and you know, take off some of the burden of watching your kids or driving your kids or do something. People are going to help you along the way because without that, it's really, you got to include them in the decisions. Like, you know, otherwise it's hard. How do you think you find that if you don't already, like, how do you see, how do you set that up for yourself? Like you were, sounds like you were lucky. You had a husband that was that way or, or um, you know, some friends in your life. But how do you, along the way, how do you make sure you're, you're doing that? There's a thing that, you know, you become the average of the five to 10 people you surround yourself yeah. with. And, yeah. and there's some of that, but I mean, were, were you consciously thinking of that? Like, you know, yeah, I'm not sure I saw it earlier on. Like, I really don't. Like, I mean, I would say Larry and I talked about it even before we got married. We talk about the important things, right? Like kids, religion, you know, all the things, right? Um, but we never really talked about it until we were like faced with it. You're like, oh, well, now what do we do? You know, um, so, but, but I was kind of new, you know, he was, he was a supportive person, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and I think too, you're going to, there's people that I've encountered that were friends for a while. They're no longer friends because they weren't supporting me. Like I they weren't like, it's like your posse, right? Like yeah. you've got to, like to your point, if those five or 10 people, when one of them starts to, you know, cause you angst or, you know, talk behind your back or, you know what I mean? Whatever it is, you kind of, you, and that took me a long time to, cause I would feel invested in people. Right. And I would feel like walking away was a failure where I think, you know, you, especially as you get older, you kind of realize that. You don't have as much, you know, how you get so busy, you don't have so much time, you don't want to waste it on people who are not going to, and that doesn't mean they're bad people, right? I mean, there's plenty of people that I'm, you know, I'm acquaintances with now where I used to be close friends with because, you know, our lives change, their situation change. So it's not that they're bad people, but if they're not helping you or not making you feel good and joyous and all the things, you know, it's time to move on because life's too short, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's taken me, and maybe that's just, we get to a certain age where Mm -hmm. we start to understand that it's, um, I'm not responsible for other people's happiness right. and, and, uh, I actually have no control over that anyway, even though I think, right. I, even though I like to think we do. Yeah. yeah right. Exactly. I, I, yeah. I did this thing for you and now you're happy. And <laughs> now I you should be happy. Right. Exactly. It's, it's not, that's just not the case. And a lot mm-hmm. of that's actually a very codependent. No, but I think we were saying like that whole idea of having the right people around you. Right. Like if you don't and recognizing when you don't, right. Um, it's, you know, when I look back at what's the single most like, important thing, like that's it. Like, you know, you, you need people that you, especially as you get like, 
higher up in the organization, right? Like I think, you know, one of the harder parts, like you said it earlier, like there's pressure, like when you, you know, as you start talking about it, it's like, yeah, there's a lot that sits on people who have these kinds of roles. Um, the other thing is it can be awfully lonely, right? Because you don't have any peers, right? You don't have, um, you don't have, you know, like when you're coming up in an organization, there's always a layer of people that you can always go like, oh, this Tina, isn't she crazy? She lost her mind, blah, 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 blah. When you're the CEO, like you don't have that, right? You do. Um, so having that outside of work is really important and other colleagues, other CEOs, other other people that you lean on. So I have found it very helpful to talk to other people who have roles similar to mine when I'm having a problem at work because then I can say, hey, have you ever dealt with this? I'm not sure what to do here. Right. And you get that outside perspective. So your circle you know, obviously it starts tight, right? Your, your partner, your spouse, your significant other, whatever it is, right? But then as you, you have consent, I think circles that move out that you've got to lean on people to help you figure it out, you know? Yeah. And those are mentors and those are, you know, Mm -hmm. people that you lean on for advice because you know, they have the experience, right? You know, you don't ask your barber for dental advice. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. It's, it's, you know, um, that's so true. But like that compartmentalizing and the thought process, how do you cultivate that? You have a morning routine, are you reading stuff? Are you meditating? Are you working out? Like, what are you doing on your on, on your own uh, to be this person that shows up that way and that's yeah. able to perform that way? Um, well, I'm not a great morning person. So no. um, I do, I would say from a routine is try to get out of bed. No, I'm kidding. Um, um, I will say the one thing I do in the morning, and this is, I think, as I've really kind of honed this more in the last year with the pandemic, right, is yeah, how do you fight off that kind of feeling of, you know, despair, depression, all the things that's going on is like, you know, really before I get out of bed, think of one thing I'm grateful for. You know, just what is it that you're grateful for today? Um, and I do that again at night, right? Like, what was I grateful for today? Because there's always every day. I don't. I should. But I, yeah, it's funny because I've never been a big journaler. But I've just started thinking, like, maybe I should try journaling because I've heard a lot of people talk about it. So I may give that a shot. But I just try right now, like, you know, what is the, you know, what is the thing I'm grateful for? Um, because there's so much you can, especially this year, right? There's so much people have lost, right? You know, God forbid some, you know, many people lost loved ones. But many people lost high school graduations or whatever it is. So you can get into that. I lost so much. So just try, I try to focus on a couple things every day that I'm grateful for. I do try, you know, to your point about working out, I do find like um, working out really helps me. Like it helps me mentally. So I'm a huge Pelotoner. I love riding my Peloton or even when the weather starts to get nice like it is now, walk outside. And so I try every day to make, even if it's five minutes, because there's some days that I just can't fit it in. But yeah. even if it's five minutes of, you know, meditation or five minute walk around the block or whatever, I try really to get up and out and moving because I find that helps me mentally. Yeah. And um, that, I enjoy it. That's meditation too. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, my gratitude, uh, you know, I, I, I try to write it down, but sometimes I don't. I mean, I do the best I can, but mm-hmm. sometimes it's simple. It's my hands and feet work. Right. Yep. It doesn't have to be anything grand. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it's those basic things that help me really have a, a a feeling of gratitude right. throughout the the day. And I think the gratitude is the opposite of resentment and fear, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I can just remain in that space, then whatever happens to pop up, right. you know, if I didn't just drop dead immediately, it wasn't that bad, was it? Like, right, I mean, right. Yeah. Like my grandma always used to tell me, it's like, you know, I don't know what you're complaining for. Somebody always has it worse. Yeah. You know what I mean? So and the other thing she would always say is like, people would give anything to have your problems, right? You know what I mean? Because like you're complaining because like, you know, yeah, your shoelace broke or something, whatever the minute thing is. And then, you know, some poor people are dealing with, you yeah. know, illness and, and what have you. So I remember when I used to be praying for the problems that I have. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. The things that I call. Yeah, you know, it's so true. It's, it's just, you yeah. know, do but you, I, um, I will try, I will try the writing down thing. I think I'm going to give that a shot because uh, people, you know, a lot of people have said that to me lately. So I was like, hmm, you have to give that a world. It's, and it's, and I think it's, it's cause even when I write down a note, even on a sticky tab, mm-hmm. I remember whatever it is I was supposed to do a little bit better than if I just make a mental note. And I mm-hmm. think there's something to it with that. Yeah. 
in the, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And whatever yeah. works for you. That's what I yeah. figure. That's the other thing too. You got to learn. You know, whatever works for you is what you need to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, so mm-hmm. do you, um, what about the way you speak to yourself? Like I am statements, uh, affirmations. Do you do any of that? Like, is that something you've ever practiced? Well, before? it's funny you say that because one of the, um, the, the Peloton thing is goofy because now it's going to sound like I'm in a cult, but, um, you know, their instructors all talk about that, right? And they have meditations and I think that, but they talk about how important self-talk is. And I hadn't really thought about it, but back to like the imposter syndrome, like on those days where you feel like, ugh, I just faked them out again. I can't, you know, I have started to do like, you know what? You can do this. You're smart. This is good. You know what I mean? So that kind of, you know, talk to yourself like you would want to talk to your loved ones. You know, I do think there's power in that, you know, and your inside head voice sometimes is your worst. Oftentimes I should say is your worst enemy, right? And it's always, you make it out to be worse than the reality of it is. So I have really just recently started trying to practice that kind of inside head talk. Yeah. Because he sounds just like me. He's always mean to me. I don't know what this guy's problem is. He's just like, you know, I'm always, you know. (laughs) He's the only one listens to he's me. He's been calling me fat for 40 years. I don't understand what this guy's problem is. It's like, you know. Right, 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 um, right. Yep. No, that's true. But, I think it's important because how you think about yourself is it sets your day up, right? Like to your point got earlier about choosing to be happy, right? Like I can't, I can't make you happy. You can't be happy. I can only make me happy, right? So how do you do that, right? It's right. just what do you feed your brain? You yeah. know, and I think even like, what do you intake? You know, like I, I was talking to my, um, my daughter about this. Like she loves, um, crime shows like CSI and that kind of stuff. She's always getting murdered sometimes. We, oh, and I like, it, it makes me anxious, right? Yeah. Cause I'm like, you know, I like want to, my life is so busy and crazy. Like I need like lollipop, like I need some shit's Creek in my life and I don't need CSI, you know? So, um, but I think there's that element of what do you feed your brain? You know, what do you, yeah. and whatever it is that doesn't, my, what I feed mine can be different than what you feed yours, but is it something that gives you peace and solace and yeah comfort and all those things or you know enjoyment as opposed to you know feeding all especially now with all the junk that we can get on our phones and and so forth and so much of it's just not healthy you know what we think is what we become right Mm -hmm. i mean i think if you repeat something to yourself long enough you'll eventually start believing it yeah um and and i've gone through plenty of times where uh that negative self-talk is really it's shaped the opinion I had of myself and that ultimately shaped the way that I acted throughout the day because I believed my own self thoughts. Mm-hmm. And then it was ultimately, it was the actions I was taking that set up this, um, I was exactly what I was right. thinking. I'm yeah. not saying I control the world with my thoughts. I just right. mean that, right. you know, I think there's a relationship between behaviors and thoughts and, and, and perception of ourselves. And that ultimately is if we can, uh, if we can manage that stand guard at the gate of our mind of what we put in there and what we think and how we view certain things and acceptance of things the way that they are mm-hmm. instead of the way that you know we perceive them the feelings aren't facts that whole right thing. yep yeah um i think it makes a difference mm-hmm. and, I, and i've heard no i think so too and i think i think it's important like when you see even you say that out loud to you know back to the your support structure right like if you say oh you know you've, you've got those right people in your life you can say oh I can't do this job. I can't believe they gave this to me. That's your self-talk coming out your mouth, right? You know, then you've got people around you be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard you say. Like, why would you say that? And then they help you with that, you know, and then you start to internalize it and it's kind of becomes a nice, if you've got the right people in your life, a nice, um, you know, counter to the bad self-talk in your head sometimes. A lot of times that's fear, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of times, yeah. Because, you know, how have you responded to that? I mean, you know, one thing I, I, I do like to ask, a lot of people is were you ever in a point I call it the jumping off point right but it's a point where you're fearful you realize you can't keep doing what you're doing but you're unsure what to do next and it can be yeah. professionally it can be personally I mean you being a mother and mm-hmm. being on the road a lot or uh, working or leaving a company being with a company yeah. or just cutting out friends like what you have anything like that and what do you think that does for you as an individual yeah I think that the whole coming over you know you're right fear is the bigger the big stopper right because you'll think about it and I think um, you know when I think about 
what I've been through or, you know, my experiences, there have been times when it's like you get to a point in a job and you're like, oh, this isn't really fueling my soul anymore. Right? I'm not, you know, I'm not, it's hard to get out of bed every morning or it's whatever, whatever it is. Um, and then you're, you kind of know you're ready to make a change, but actually making it is difficult because where you are is known to you and safe to you and all those things. So I think um, the um, getting over that fear of what the next thing could be is, is, is a challenge often, right? You know, I think about like, you know, that's, again, was where my husband was always helpful because when I would get myself, you know, into a place where like, oh, I can't, like, I'll tell, like, here's a good story. I'm trying to think of an example. Here's a good example. Like when we moved here to Virginia, the job, it was an easy decision job wise because it definitely made sense. But my son had just finished first grade, right? He was in, well, he just started first grade, I think. It was like November when I got the job offer. And he had, kindergarten was a separate school. And so first grade was his first, you know, class or first year in that new school. So he had just transitioned to a new school. And I got myself so wrapped up, like sobbing wrapped up in the fact is like, what a cruel mother I am because I'm going to make him move again, right? And my husband is like, you have lost your mind. Like he's six, he's going to be fine. You know what I mean? Um, but I had this fear about what is that going to do to my my kid, you know, and how do I do that? And I think left to my own devices, I would have turned the job down. I'd still be living in New Jersey because Tyler needed to stay in the same school, right? Where Larry was like, this is craziness, you know? And he actually had me talk to a friend of mine who was in the military who's moved his family you know, he was older than us, so his kids were older, but, you know, moved his family a bunch of times and talked about all the positive things that did for his kids, right? And all of the new experiences they had and all the things. So, but if I hadn't overcome that fear, you know, my life, I mean, I'm not sure if it would be better or worse because you can't look back, right? But um, moving here made, you know, things went very well for us once we moved here. So it was the right decision, I think. And I had to really push through that fear to to do that. Um, and it's hard. Yeah. So you got to like that whole, like you got to take a leap every now and then. And that is, um, often uncomfortable, but that's where goodness happens, right? You know, staying in the same thing, doing the same thing over and over again, often doesn't lead to bigger and better things. Right. So you got to be willing to, you know, and then the reality is I'm also a big, I am also a big fan of, you know, think about what's the worst thing that could happen. Right. So if I take this leap, I'll like honest, what's the worst thing? Okay. I could suck the new job and get fired. What would happen? I get a new job. You know what I mean? I get a new job, right? You know, so once you start to think about like, what is the worst thing that can happen and can I live with that? Then everything else is easy after that, right? So. Do you think that's that that built that muscle memory that you have with you to, to address things head on, even the difficult conversations and just have conversations with it because you're kind of always doing that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it gets like anything else, any muscle that you use over and over again gets, you know, more toned and better at its job as you do it. But yeah, yeah, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, you traveled a lot, it mm. sounds like. Even, I mean, for work, you mm-hmm. guys travel personally too? You take vacations. Well, so that's the funny part. Like people talk, you talk about world travelers. Like I've traveled a lot of places, but like like I've never been to Paris. I've never been to London. Like I've never been to the cool places everybody goes. Um, so we we started, and I, that's funny you say that because my husband and I are like, oh, as soon as the kids are in school, we're going to start traveling. And then yeah. COVID. Um, so we hope to travel more. You know, the kids, you know, we've taken the kids, you know, places um, somewhat, but we hope to do a lot more of it because I do like, I really think, especially for kids, one thing because of the travel I did with work, well, I was often in difficult places and I was often in places where you just see like poverty beyond poverty, right? And it just changes your view on life, right? It just changes who you are. Um, and I where's, think where's like the hardest place? I, I, for me, I think the hardest, there were two that were really hard. Um, one was South Sudan, Africa. Um, I had been there right after their independence, been in between the two civil wars. Um, so it was a little hopeful when I was there cause they had just come out of one, they just established their independence and it was going well, but you could just see like, you know, there were 
girls and women sitting on the side of the road, like breaking rocks with their hands, like doing quarry work. And like, you start to think about it. Like the only reason that's not me is I was born where I was born and she was born where she was born. So you start having those conversations. But I think the hardest place for me was Haiti because I got to go to Haiti shortly after the earthquake because we were there to help fix um, and do some you know work with the police force down there. And it's like an hour and a half flight from Florida, right? And it was such abject poverty, right? It was just like heartbreaking. Like it was just like, how does this happen an hour and a half from Miami? Like how, you know, um, and that, that really, and then, you know, what was heartwarming about that experience though, was then you saw how many people were there trying to help. Right. And even that some of the people who worked for my company at the time, you know, we had young guys who were police officers. Our job there was to help train the police forces, um, on how to do, you know, interviewing suspects and jailing and all those things. But you had guys who were in there, you know, late twenties, early thirties, who somehow found their way down there and they were, um, like, how could I not help? I had to come here and help, you know? So you, in any tragedy, you always see the hopefulness of the human spirit and the people who were there to help. But, um, that definitely changes your perspective on things. And now you actually, now that you brought that up, I think that has probably changed how I have, um, that's, I think, well, the empathy comes from, right. And like, you know, on any, like my, my kids used to say, my daughter, especially when I would travel, she started to learn that, um, like when I would come back from those places, you know, that was not the time to complain to me about your Nintendo not working or your PSP, right? Because then I'd be on a rant, you know, so it changed your perception. So Michaela started asking like, mommy, where are you going? And I would tell her and she didn't know because she was little, you know, she's like, is that a hard place? And I'm like, what do you mean a hard place? She's like, well, because it was a hard place. I'll be really good when you come back. Because yeah. that's how she, you know, that's how she started to internalize. Hey, when mommy comes back, I know, like the Haiti trip, I started showing my husband pictures. I was just bawling, right? Because you just, it was just so hard to, to see, you know. Um, so I do think that shaped my kids a little bit. Like, oh, you know. So I think, you know, the travel is, you know, um, was is probably part of what shaped my leadership journey yeah. too, because you kind of see, you know, how how there's such good in people and there's such joy in these people who are helpers. Why wouldn't you want to be one of those people? And then to again be grateful for what you have because you know, it's, it's, you know, by there, by the grace of God, go I, or whatever that saying right. is. Right. But like, it really does open your mind to be empathetic to the people around you and the, and see how you can help. And then to see what our government does back to the, how we started this conversation back to the mission of what I saw our brave men and women for the state department doing in these really hard conditions, you know, it makes, it makes, it makes it really, you know, important for me to get out of bed every morning and to do what I can do to help help facilitate that for them. Yeah, it's easy to forget sometimes what the mission actually is mm -hmm. for some of these, uh, you know, even defense contractors, but yep. it has to be a defense contractor to do that, mm -hmm. right? Because they mm -hmm. have a contract with the State Department and because of the need for security around some of those things, it's going to be one of the defense contractors. Mm -hmm. And there'll be some other people too. Right. Right. Um, you know, Peace Corps and some mm -hmm. other folks that contract mm -hmm. with them, but still. But I think too, and to your point about like, I think as you go out and come up in leadership, like it's really important as a leader in an organization to remember like the mission and the people in your organization who are on the front line of whatever it is you do, right? Like, um, like that trip to Haiti was interesting. Like when I was there, I always um, say to the program manager on site, I say, hey, like, you know, I want to see the client. I want to see the, but then take me to what you think I should see. And this guy, the last day I was there, I'd been there like 10 days, the last day I there, he's like, today we're going to go to the port. And I'm like, okay. You know, um, and like we got up, I saw like 4.30 in the morning and the port was probably four miles away from where we were. Like it wasn't far by your, your, our, our standards. Right. But we left the compound at 6.30 and because of the, the, the disaster of the roads and so I don't think we got to the port till about 11. 
And then um, we spent like an hour there and then we tried to leave because we had seen the tour or whatever. And, you know, what he wanted to show me was just how hard it was to do things, to receive goods and, and so forth. And we go to leave. We can't leave because, you know, there's a dump truck that has parked itself at the gate and the guy left for lunch. So now we're stuck at the port. For, so long story short, we leave at 630 in the morning. We don't get back till um, like five o'clock at night. And I didn't really see anything except the inside of the car. And it was hot and dusty. And I'm like, what in God's good earth are we doing? You know, so we get back to the compound and we sit down to, to dinner. And the guy says to me, he's like, I, you're probably wondering, you know, what, what was that all about? And I said, yeah, a little bit, you know? And um, he's like, well, can you just remember like the next time when somebody in New Jersey wants to hang up on me because I can't get a PO in the same day that they need it? Could you explain your day to them? And I was like, good on you, buddy. Like you just, you just showed me what I needed to see, right? Because we had lost, we as the support people back here who were helping the guys who were in the field had lost sight of how hard their job was, right? And we had a whole, you know, I quickly then learned there was a morale problem and all sorts of things because we lost sight on what the mission was. And you've got to do that as a leader. You've got to get out. You've got to see your people. You've got to understand what it is they're trying to do every day um, so that you can understand that and then make sure that the rest of the organization provides support to the people who are actually executing for your client. So, you know, that that's kind of a, a moment in time that I had that reminds me you know, you've got to, you got to make sure you stay close to the, the people serving your client. Yeah. What, um, so with that, I mean, like what kind of critical missions are you working on now with the SGT? Yeah. I think about our military, they've got so many problems that they're trying to do in the areas of like energy efficiency. Like you think about the infrastructure of our bases and, um, our locations, they're all like circa 1945, right? So built in a very different time period, they all have energy resilient needs on how do you do things more efficiently. Um, they all want, they all need to be modernized, right? And what Siemens, one of the cool, like one of the one contracts we were on that, which is really cool, is we are in the process of digitally mapping all of the Navy shipyards. So what we're actually going in is, like we've done Pearl Harbor, we're doing Puget, we're heading up to Norfolk next, I think. We do a whole digital map of the shipyard. And it's almost like a video game when you're done with it. You can actually pick up buildings and move them. We, we track all of the workflows. We interview the sailors on, you know, tell me how you're, what do you do today? And track, you know, where they walk, you know, if they got to go pick up a tool here or move one there. And then we can map the whole operation of the um, shipyard. And then we can optimize it further. We can say, hey, if you put this building here or put that machine shop there, you're going to save, um, you know, money and time. And it's all about minimizing the time that a ship has to be in dry dock, right? Because the more I can have the ships out at the sea, that's their, they're executing their mission. So if I can get them into a shipyard, fix them and get them through maintenance cycle faster and get them back out, we don't have to build new ships as quickly. We don't, you know, we're safer, right? Because our ships are at sea and not in, in dry dock. So, um, you know, the fact that we can do that for, and we think about, we can do that for any installation. We can do it for army depots. We can do it for hospitals. We can do it. You think about the VA and all of the, the infrastructure they so just these digital tools that Siemens has um, is really cool. Um, another project that we're really proud of is we do a lot of what they call um, energy savings performance contracts where we are able to refresh the energy like at Guantanamo Bay for the Navy right now, we are redoing their entire uh, power system. So we're building a new power plant um, and we're also improving the demand side. So how the buildings use energy and we're going to pay for that by the savings they're generating from creating the new energy source. So the government doesn't have to pay for anything. We actually fund the work through the contract. So we put out a whole proposal that says, 
you know, we're going to build this infrastructure, this infrastructure will save you X amount of dollars. And those are the dollars that you can pay the loan off with. So as a taxpayer, I love it, right? Yeah. Because it, they, the government doesn't have to fund more money to, to do that. And it gets them the infrastructure they need in a way that is, is efficient and uh, drives real value for them. So there's just so much that, you know, this, that Siemens has to offer that it's pretty, it's pretty exciting, right? And it's, it's just fun to be, like just this week, I was, you know, on the phone with some of the you know, senior people in the Pentagon talking about what the ability is that we can do. And they get so excited because like, oh, if you can just help us figure this out, because that's their biggest issue is just infrastructure and modernization, depending on if you've talked to General Raymond from Space Force or Hondo Gertz in the Navy, that's all of what they're, they're really focused on is how do they improve and modernize their, their forces and their structures so that they can be the most efficient and be ready for whatever the next fight is, you know. Um, so we've got a lot of stuff that we can offer them. And it's kind of fun to, to be able to perform that for them. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And, it, and sometimes it's easy to forget that it's a lot of problem solving. Mm-hmm. It's not just, you know, sometimes you can hear things about the government contracting world, especially mm-hmm. the defense world, and forget that they're problem solving. They're, these are folks that are really just trying to, absolutely, you know, get no. something done easier or faster or just make more sense, just optimizing a Navy yard. Mm-hmm. Like that just saves time. Right. Yeah. Energy. Yeah. I think we're going to, you know, we're, and, and what we're seeing in these, as we get more mature at these models is, you know, we thought, you know, oh, maybe we'll be able to save, improve efficiencies by 10, 15%. We're seeing upwards 25, 30, 40, like yeah, it's significant it's numbers. Numbers. So these are real numbers. And we think about the defense budget, if you could start yeah. cutting it, making it 20% more efficient, that's billions of dollars, right, right? That you can use on other things. Right. So, you know, it really is an exciting place to, to play and to partner with them, um, which is kind of cool. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, so for anyone listening who wants to be a part of the part of the mission, right? Um, you guys are mission first. Mm-hmm. People always. <laughs> exactly. So how, how do they get in touch with Siemens or how do they reach out to try to, you know, have coffee with you? Yeah, well, we just actually we just recently um, worked hard, really hard on refreshing um, how you can get to us. Right. So you can search us on LinkedIn. If you just search Siemens Government Technologies, you'll get to our new LinkedIn page. Um, you can get to us through if you Google Siemens, Siemens Government Technologies. You'll get to our website. That's the best way to to reach out. Um, you can private message, and you'll see. You know, once you uh, get to our LinkedIn, you can get to all of us executives that way. So it's a real nice way to reach out, and we'll do our best to get back to you as quickly yeah. as we can. And go check out the new webpage because we're pretty proud of it. So yeah, all right. <laughs> what is it? So the website is SiemensGovernment.com. Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders, on Instagram at DC Local Leaders, or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you're a business leader and have questions on your lease and how it impacts your business's opportunities to grow or have questions about the market, you can reach Philip directly at philip.nathram at transwestern.com. He'd love to speak with you. Until next time.